Hello and welcome to Asia Stream, where we track, report, and analyze the issues and interests of the world's largest region. I am Waj Khan, Nikkei Asia's digital editor here in New York City. Today's episode the China Russia India Love Triangle. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine turns into a brutal all out war beyond the casualties which continue to pile and the refugees who continue to flee and the sanctions which continue to hurt the Russian economy and the misinformation which continues to be manufactured from all sides, the world is taking stock of who is standing by the side of Vladimir Putin. The list is short. It features the usual bad boys of the international order, North Korea, Iran, Syria and a smattering of less relevant actors. But two major powers really stand out for not condemning Russia's actions. China and India. The evidence lies right here in New York. Since the beginning of this year, the United Nations Security Council has met half a dozen times and the General Assembly has met twice to discuss Ukraine and reprimand Russia. In the many votes and resolutions passed, both China and India continue to abstain. Besides their official lack of condemnation, many see this as a sign of their tacit support for Moscow. But why are Beijing and New Delhi putting themselves in this position? On the surface, China and India seem like an unlikely pairing. China is the world's largest as well as its most powerful authoritarian regime. The People's Republic has exercised a very different strand of communism compared to the Soviet Union and the Communist Party of China isn't by any means headed down the path the USSR took three decades ago. As for India, well, the world's largest democracy has now turned into one of the planet's most dynamic economies with a robust constitutional clarity for fundamental rights and a century-long tradition of voting. Thus, it's no surprise that China and India are rivals. As the largest nations in Asia, indeed the world, this is expected. They've been on a war footing since 2020. They claim each other's territory. India just diplomatically boycotted the Beijing Olympics, but only after the Chinese gave the honor of torchbearer to a soldier who had fought Indian forces. Of course, India's Western leanings have irritated China. Delhi has joined the US-led Quad that is meant to keep China in check in the Indo-Pacific. Meanwhile, Beijing has armed and supported India's arch-enemy, Pakistan, for decades and continues to support and invest in other countries in India's neighborhood. So, why are these rivals supporting Russia? What does Moscow offer that both Beijing and Delhi are going out on a limb for it? The answer for China is clearer. Both Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin enjoy a warm relationship. Russia has been moving increasingly closer to China in its economic ties with the People's Republic and depends on the great Chinese hunger for energy for much of its oil and gas exports. Of course, Russia is a much smaller economy, but in their rhetoric and actions, both Moscow and Beijing are equal partners in being declared anti-Western regimes, which continuously question and critique the US-led order. But what about India? Russia and India's dynamics are quite different. They barely trade. 
Unlike Russia and China, they don't have a common border. Yet, the ties between Moscow and Delhi go back decades and are primarily based in security. See, India lives in a tough neighborhood. Since independence, it has fought one war with China, three with Pakistan and countless skirmishes with both. To secure itself, it started tilting towards Moscow in the 1950s as it became the first non-communist country to receive Soviet weaponry. Over the decades, the Russia-India defense relationship has developed into the most robust one in the world. Today, if Russia is the world's second biggest arms exporter, then India is its largest and most loyal customer. Over 60% of India's armory today is Russian-made or licensed. Still, India is a democracy and has shocked many observers by not criticizing Russia's actions. Is it that dependency on Russian weapons which is causing India to risk its democratic credentials with the West? Or does Delhi have a larger scheme to consider, like ensuring that its old Cold War ally and weapons dealer, Russia, doesn't go all out into the arms of its nemesis, China? Thus, the China-Russia-India love triangle. It's going to be a heck of a show. Tune in to understand the war behind the war. You're listening to The Sound of Asia, streaming in your ear. From Nikkei Asia, this is Asia Stream. Now, the elephant, or perhaps in this case, dragon, in the Russia-Ukraine war room is China. From Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin meeting on opening day of the Olympics to however this conflict shall end, China's effect on Putin's decision-making and vice versa have played a massive role in the development of this invasion. Joining me in the studio to discuss this further is Asia Stream correspondent Jack Stone Truett. Jack, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, Jack, there seems to be a flurry of information out there about what China knew about Russia's invasion and when China knew it. So what's going on here? That is the central question right now as it relates to China's role in all of this. The New York Times has just reported that senior Chinese officials told their Russian counterparts in early February not to invade Ukraine while the Olympics were still ongoing, hmm. which, of course, would indicate that China had some knowledge of Russia's plans. This comes after earlier reporting that the U.S. actually shared classified intel with China months ago in the hopes that they could do something to prevent it. Hmm. So it seems extremely unlikely that Xi was not aware of Putin's plans to invade. We may never know, but it's possible Xi simply did not take the threat of a Russian invasion seriously or that he simply miscalculated with the information he had. Okay, so step back a bit, if you may. Why is China a part of this conversation regarding a conflict centered around NATO in Europe, taking place halfway across the world from Beijing. So let's go back to that meeting between Putin and Xi in early February at the start of the Olympics. Hmm. Putin is amassing troops on the border. The U.S. is warning of a possible invasion and threatening sanctions, and none of it seems to be dissuading the Russian president. And maybe that's in part because he feels that China has and will have his back. So other than rhetorically or sending in military support, which is unlikely, how can China support Putin while the rest of the world cuts him off? So since the invasion, the global response has been pretty unified and severe. 
Russia is cut off from European and American airspace. Many oligarchs have had their assets frozen or seized. And most notably, the global payment system known as SWIFT has banned several Russian banks from using it. Hmm. All in all, Russia has been extremely economically isolated. And this is where China comes in. As the world's second biggest economy, access to Chinese capital could help mitigate these sanctions. And China's own cross-border interbank payment system could help come into play instead of SWIFT. Though neither can fully make up for the kind of economic isolation Russia is experiencing. So have they actually done any of this? Not quite. So far, China's response has been relatively nuanced and muted. They've yet to call Russia's actions an invasion and continue to harp on NATO expansion as playing a role in the conflict. But China's ambassador to the UN, Zhang, has said that the situation has, quote, evolved to a point which China does not want to see. The invasion also violates all concepts of national sovereignty, something Beijing takes very seriously. And I've noticed that they've begun to use the S-word, sovereignty, quite often at the UN, too. But, Jack, this one may be difficult to answer, but it must be asked. What does all of this mean right now for General Secretary Xi? Obviously, it's far too early to make any major declarations, but recall that on the eve of Russia's invasion, one major talking point was whether or not it would serve as sort of a blueprint for China to possibly invade Taiwan. So far, the obstacles Russia has faced both in the invasion itself and from the global response to it may serve as a warning sign to the difficulty China could have in a military campaign of their own. It also could bolster America's resolve in defending the island. Just this week, a delegation from the U.S. arrived in Taipei, including former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, to affirm U.S. support. Of course, it could also be a lesson in how to navigate the choppy waters of an international sanctions regime as well, right? A bit of wargaming to see what happens when you invade a little piece of real estate that may or may not be yours by international law. So... How about going forward? What's next? Remember that it's a critical year for Xi, who is seeking to secure an unprecedented third term during the party congress this fall. And given the broad global consensus condemning Russia's invasion, it's unlikely he will make any major moves and risk a political backlash at home. Right. Any major moves like uh, helping kick off World War III. Jack Stone Truett, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, just before he got to China to meet Xi Jinping at the Olympics, guess where Vladimir Putin was? India. As Russian troops were massing on the Ukrainian border in December, Putin was in Delhi for what was just his second international trip during the pandemic. Putin's tour was meant to coincide with yet another important weapons deal with India, one of many the two countries have inked, since the 1950s. This time, Russia was delivering the sophisticated S-400 air defense system to the Indians. Worth around $5.4 billion, the S-400 is considered one of the world's most advanced weapons platforms. But more than what it can do, which is to shoot down enemy aircraft from the ground, it is the politics behind the system that are more intriguing. By buying the S-400 from the Russians, the Indians have risked sanctions from their new partners, the U.S. Turkey, which is a NATO ally of the U.S., purchased the same system from the Russians and triggered the wrath of those sanctions from Washington, which essentially cut off the Turks from most future weapons deals with the U.S. By buying the system, the Indians 
who are technically not U.S. allies, but are increasingly active in groups like the Quad, a uh, security partnership between the U.S., India, Japan, and Australia, have exposed themselves to the same sanctions. The thinking is simple. With its rival China, nuclear-armed, and nemesis Pakistan, also nuclear-armed, sitting on its borders, and a decades-old defense relationship with Russia still intact, why should India bet all on American weapons? Some think this explains why Delhi didn't condemn Moscow when its invasion began. Although Prime Minister Modi appealed to Putin for an immediate cessation of violence in a phone call on the first day of the war, Indian officials have steered clear of blaming the Russian president. Instead, New Delhi continues to stay in touch with both Moscow and Kiev as it has prioritized evacuation operations for thousands of its citizens still inside Ukraine. But balancing acts are tricky and risk upsetting the same parties one is trying to please. Is India risking its democratic credentials? To discuss this complicated place that India finds itself in, an indispensable partner of the West on the one hand, but an old customer of Russia's on the other, I spoke to Dhruv Jashankar, the executive director of the Observer Research Foundation America. He is also a non-resident fellow with the Lowy Institute in Australia and a former fellow at the Brookings Institution and the German Marshall Fund. Here is our conversation. All right. Now, Dhruv, uh, let's get straight to business. Mm -hmm. India needs both the US and Russia mm -hmm. to contain China. We've mm -hmm. heard this story, but explain the dilemma to us. How is it on the ground? What are the actual compulsions that are keeping India in this weird, tricky, balancing high-wire act? So, I mean, first of all, I mean, I wouldn't say that the, the object is to contain China. Uh, I think that's not necessarily the Indian objective or that of, of any other country. But there is a, a serious concern about a disputed boundary between uh, India and China. I mean, it is a major security challenge. But beyond that, I think India sees, like other countries, concerns about uh, Chinese assertiveness in the Indian Ocean region, concerns about a Belt and Road Initiative, about its market principles and trade practices, and on its sort of uh, ch challenges with global norms, freedom of navigation and overflight being just one of them. So there's a whole variety of concerns about China as a growing strategic challenge for India. And in this context, India has sought partners in, in many places, most importantly, the US, uh, which shares many of those concerns, but also Japan, Australia, those four countries, of course, constitute the Quad, which has now been sort of formalized and, and now meets on a regular basis. But an old partner has also been Russia. And India has had this relationship, a defense relationship with Russia from the late 1950s. It has had an aid relationship from the mid-1950s. Before that, uh, India was actually the, one of the first recipients of outside non-communist recipients of Soviet aid. Uh, in 1971, of course, India and the, then the Soviet Union signed a, a treaty. And since the last 20 years of the Cold War, India very firmly tilted in, in towards uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, in the 1990s and 2000s, a lot of that relationship continued, but it was really mo became mostly a one-dimensional defense relationship. And even to this day, about 60% of India's defense imports, uh, if you take it over a five or 10-year span, come from Russia. Uh, that share has been declining. Uh, uh, US exports to India have grown. 
Uh, French exports have grown, Israeli exports have grown, but Russia remains the biggest external supplier of Indian military hardware, including for some very critical components for of critical platforms. So Sukhoi 30 fighters, which are sort of frontline fire, along with the Rafale fighter jets, are sort of the frontline fighters that India has. Nuclear attack submarine, nuclear powered attack submarines, which uh, Russia leases. And a whole range of ballistic missile defense. India has uh, entered into an agreement, a somewhat controversial agreement, about importing S-400 ballistic missiles. Right. So, Dhruv, that clearly creates a more complicated narrative than the one which one usually reads. That, oh, India uh, has been dealing with the Russians for also so many years, and India has uh, is not in a comfortable spot with China, and thus it needs Russia to balance it off. Because... There's more actors here, right? India's relationship with China may be tense. Yes, the two countries have been at war footing essentially for the last couple of years, but they trade so much more uh, mm -hmm. than uh, India and Russia, mm -hmm. uh, for example. Meanwhile, the Indian relationship with the US hasn't been static, as you pointed out. They've been increasingly proximate. They trade. They Obviously, there's a from a zero literally nil from 2007 or 8 the defense ties have now ballooned to i think maybe 20 billion or so mm -hmm. of course the american indian trade relationship and strategic relationship is getting closer literally by the moment but this is not a balancing act this is a triple or quadruple balancing act if you throw in the neighbors as well the pakistans of the world which are moving closer to moscow um, mm -hmm. the myanmar's of the world which are moving closer to beijing so can you explain to me how complicated it is? What is the the way forward for them as far as what can they do and what can't they do? Look, I think it's quite clear. You have India has two major major security concerns: China and Pakistan. Hmm. The China concern has grown in recent years. The Pakistan concern has you know comes and goes, and there have been crises in the recent past, but it's seen as a more manageable problem. Um, but China is definitely the, the overarching concern. Um, and there is, it's not just in the South Asian context, it's not just with, between India and China. This is now, you know, having a, a global implication. So th this question of India-Russia relations is in some ways the central dilemma in all of that. And I think there is sort of genuine concern on India. Of there's no reason to uh, unnecessarily antagonize the Russian relationship, to push them away, to push them as they see it into the arms of China. That is starting to happen anyway. There is a growing Russia-China relationship. It's gone much, much deeper and much faster than many had anticipated, and sometimes not completely in Russia's favor. I mean, uh, since 2014, Russia has become much more dependent on China, including for energy exports. But it's translated into a number of other areas. So, for example, we're seeing Russia-China cooperation in what were once considered very sensitive domains, such as ballistic missile defense, uh, which was completely off the table since the 1960s, but now is back. We're seeing, as you mentioned, you know, Russia and Pakistan. Um, uh, Imran, Prime Minister Imran Khan was, was in Moscow just uh, last week. So we're seeing, starting to see some exploratory ties there, uh, both commercial and, and security related. Uh, the, the Russian position on Afghanistan, in the, until the 1990s, India and Russia were cooperating quite closely in supporting the Northern Alliance against the Taliban. But essentially, from India's point of view, Russia has switched sides now, and today has become much more accommodating of the Taliban, largely due to what they perceive as internal security reasons. But it also has led to a greater coordination with China and Pakistan. So I think this is the these are the sort of ground realities that are changing in the India-Russia relationship. But that being said, I think there, it, it remains one of India's, you know, in dimin diminishing importance, but it remains one of India's critical partners, defense being, again, the key pillar, but uh, civil nuclear commerce, for example. 
space cooperation, energy cooperation, including both coal investments that India has in the Far East and oil and natural gas. So um, again, it, it remains an important partner. And from India's point of view, there's no unnecessary reason to push it further away, given the continuing importance uh, for Indian national security. But now, moving forward, if we're going to project things. It's, there's already signs that by striking this tricky high-wire balancing act, India risks, in the end, nobody being happy with it. It risks losing Russia. It risks, of course, the White House, where the American president last week had a, quite a terse remark. Is India fully in sync with the United States on on Russia? We're going to be we're in consultation with with India today. We haven't resolved that completely. And of course, on the ground, one has seen problems arise between the two missions at the United Nations as well, the U.S. and the Indian mission. If you were a war gamer or a betting man, play this out for us. It's been a week, less than a week since the full invasion of Ukraine, and emotions are running high in Washington still, and, and not just in Washington, European capitals and, and elsewhere. Sure. I think what a crisis like this has done is it has brought out all of the skeptics of the U.S.-Western relationship in India in full force, mm. and it's brought out all the skeptics of the India relationship in, in the U.S. In, in full force. I think that's going to happen. People who it reinforces their viewpoints that, that this is a relationship that's not going to materialize. But I think it's important to keep a few things in mind, which is one, I think over the long term, the big geopolitical competition is not going to be with the between the US and Russia, it's going to be between the US and China. And in that sense, the analogy doesn't fully hold of those, those Cold War era analogies, where India was trying to make choices between the US and, and the Soviet Union. I think a second thing is that, again, look at the broader trajectory of India-Russia relations on the one hand and India-US relations, and they tell two, two rather different stories. Uh, and I think, mo again, most people who follow that know that uh, and, and know that's the case. I think the third uh, thing to keep in mind is I think there has been a great deal of understanding, particularly on the part of the US, pre-US officials of India's predicament. And we saw the State Department basically say that. Now, obviously, they would like India on side, and uh, there has been, given India's position at the UN Security Council, there has been extra scrutiny of, of India's position that otherwise may not, might not have been there. So I think we're in for a period of jostling right now. But again, the longer term structural factors, I think, will define the relationship over the long run. India-US relations have gone through far worse in the recent past, as I see it. And last couple of questions here, Drew. Yes, it's early days in the war. But even in the buildup and since the debates began at the, the United Nations, one has seen a very slow change in India's positioning and language. One has seen a similar change coming from Beijing as well, the other partner of Moscow. But this is quite different from 2014, when, of course, the Crimea was taken by the Russians and India, A, abstained and B, did not support those sanctions. It seems like the language is beginning to change. Just moments ago before this interview, there was a vote on the floor of the UN General Assembly, where India again abstained from voting. Um, can you perhaps reflect on how different things are from 2014 till now? And now in the last couple of weeks, how have the Indians been changing their position, especially since Prime Minister Modi has started to engage with leaders on the ground? 
you know, I think it's complicated. I think that strangely, the number one priority right now, and and maybe for a few, couple more days at least, perhaps another week, will be the safety and uh, well-being of about twenty thousand Indian citizens who are in Ukraine. Um, and we've had at least two deaths as of now of those Indian citizens. Well, one was a medical emergency, but their their well-being is is the number one priority, and that requires maintaining good relations insofar as possible with the Ukrainian authorities as well as European neighbors, Poland, Slovakia, uh, Moldova, Romania, Hungary, but also with Russia as well. Um, and uh, in fact, today, in the shelling of Kharkiv in particular, the, the, some, something like 4,000 Indian students whose evacuation is still up in the air uh, requires in some ways the Russian authorities. So I think that that's actually the number one priority. That being said, there, there have been a few uh, developments since India's first initial position was articulated at the UN Security Council on this issue in late February. One is you have seen India now, as you mentioned, China repeatedly mentioned respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity, finding diplomatic solutions, non-military solutions, and a sort of end to conflict. And I think that's about as pointed as India will get when it comes to Russia despite abstaining on the vote. The second thing is, I think, Prime Minister Modi, after speaking to President Putin on the first day of full hostilities on February 24th, 25th, did eventually also speak to President Zelensky. And I think that sort of helped to sort of show in some ways where India was positioning itself. And then also India has provided some humanitarian assistance, a plane load that just arrived in the last day or two to the Ukrainian border you know, via Poland and, and Romania. So I think that these have been some sort of developments that have transpired since India sort of staked out its original position. It hasn't led to a change in votes in, in any way. And I said, because of India's con uh, continuing relationship with Russia, I, I'd be very surprised if it were to, to dramatically change its position on that front. But these, I think, have been some indicators. What has gone into that? I think, you know, the big difference between 2014 is the scale of the conflict, if nothing else. One was a very limited uh, action in Crimea and in, in the Donbass. Um, but this is obviously on a, a scale that is completely different. And I think that just, that just has to be taken into account. I mean, the sanctions that the West is imposing on Russia are likely to be much, are already much more severe on an order of magnitude, but are also likely to be much more long lasting from this. And that will have secondary implications for India amongst other countries. So um, I think that that's the main thing that differentiates today from the 2014 context. Drew, finally, mm -hmm. um, please expand on why the Indian vote and positioning in this entire gambit matters. Frankly, Pakistan's abstained as well, but mm -hmm. it's not as important, perhaps. Uh, uh, the UAE has abstained, but again, not as important. So many Middle Eastern countries, Southeast Asian countries are sitting this one out. Nobody really cares, but India keeps on India keeps on popping up as an important, significant fence sitter. Why does India matter more than other countries when it comes to its weighing in this conflict. Weigh in on that for us, please. So I, I think so broadly three reasons or some combination thereof. I think one is the fact that India is on the UN Security Council, which puts it in greater, gives it greater scrutiny than if it had not been on the, on the Security Council at this point of time. So I say compared to is at least initially Israel or Indonesia's position, which was similar India and the UAE really are the ones that have abstained. Um, and I think there's been a desire on the part of the US to, if they can swing India, that the UAE sort of might follow suit, at least that's what's believed. And that would essentially isolate China and Russia on the Security Council. So in that sense, I think India is really seen as the key swing vote at the UNSC. At the General Assembly, you know, much, much broader, many more countries abstained on it. 
But I think if you look at it, India is, is the largest democracy on that. And I think that I think is what would have stood out to a lot of people examining examining that. So I think that that's in some ways why at the UNGA, perhaps that, that matters. I think the third reason is on more on the economic front, which is if the idea is to impose crushing sanctions on Russia, the more sort of large economies you can peel off and from the US point of view, and from the European point of view, the more the cooperation you can get from the large economies, the more it would isolate Russia economically. And I think China may be a bridge too far. I think nobody believes that China will fully follow the sanctions, although there may be secondary sanctions that, that will affect Chinese companies. But the other big one uh, would be India. So, uh, you know, what we've seen even uh, Singapore, Japan, South Korea co cooperate on uh, Australia, cooperate on a lot of the sanctions, getting, I think, India and to some degree, some of the Middle Eastern economies on board, some of the Southeast Asian economies on board would be, from their point of view, high priorities to, in, in terms of isolating Russia economically. So I think for these reasons, you've seen sort of the, the attention, uh, which you haven't seen in past crises, sort of uh, affected, uh, focused on India. If the Americans were to hold a gun uh, to Delhi's head today, Mm -hmm. What would that gun be? And second part is, what would India do about taking a position on this predicament? Well, you know, I I, uh, I doubt it would get to that point because, again, as I said, I think there's a degree of understanding and a de degree of cooperation and, and connectivity. I mean, there's sort of day-to-day -day cooperation going on between India and the U.S. on a whole bunch of issues, including defense, that's ongoing right now. And I uh, sort of giving India an ultimatum like that won't help at this point with with a, with, with a sort of the partnership is sort of just sort of developing it in many ways. But that being said, I think if India was forced to choose on the defense side today, it might choose Russia. Uh, if it was just, if we're just looking at the defense relationship. Um, but if it was... Wow, if that's it, quite a claim. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, again, when, when more than 50% of your defense imports, when uh, your defense industry is still very integrated with, with, with Russia, that's that's the case. But I think if you one were to the, the look at the overall relationship, and that includes the economic relationship, then clearly I think India's interests lie much more with the West. And if you look at Indian businesses, are much more integrated into the West. They're, they're dependent on financial systems in Europe and the US. So I think if you look at the overall sort of relationship, it's quite clearly in, in you know, if, if I were to look at, so do a cost-benefit analysis, I think it's quite clearly which way it lines up. But if, it were, if we're just looking narrowly at the defense relationship uh, today, um, uh, I think it, it, Russia still would be, remains the, the, the biggest, most important partner for India. That was Dhruv Jashankar of ORF America from Washington, D.C. Well, that's it for Asia Stream this week. As always, I encourage you to head to Nikkei Asia at asia.nikkei.com for more in-depth coverage of the Ukraine invasion and all things related to Asia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, subscribe and leave us a review and hopefully a five-star rating and a reminder that Nikkei Asia is currently offering an exclusive discount for our podcast listeners. To redeem, please click the link in this episode description. This episode was produced by Jack Stone Truett and myself. I'm your host, Waj Khan. Let's stream on next week.